Blessed is all of your coming. A great treat to have the room full and for a very special occasion, an opportunity to spend time with Su Professor Susanna Heschel. And I want to thank Ari Katz, who never stops doing things to make things possible, because tonight is possible with Ari Katz and the Community Scholar Program's partnership with Congregation B'nai Israel. The melody, <laughs> the melody that we began with is, seems like an appropriate way to begin for a night of celebration of the extended Heschel family. And that's because the song, particularly a song without melody, I'm, a song without melody, that's what I'm singing. <laughs> a, a song without words, a nigun, is very much part of the Hasidic tradition. And Susanna, Professor Heschel, is Sion, that's what I don't get to use too often, a Sion, an heir to a long lineage of, through her father, the connection to the Hasidic world, a world that is identified with music and prayer and using one's spirit to connect to the transcendent. So thank you for coming. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> So, on this table is a selection of some of my books uh, by Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel, whose writings have made a very big impact on me. There's also a book or two by Susanna Heschel, and it's been a privilege to follow her unfolding scholarship as well. The first book I ever read by Professor Heschel was his book, The Sabbath. By a show of hands, how many people here have read The Sabbath? Wow, that's more, that's a lot. That's really uh, gratifying. Got a learned audience. So as a place to begin, tell us about the Sabbath table in your home growing up. So, yeah. I think there's a wonderful essay that my father wrote about Yom Kippur that I printed in a, a book that I edited of his writings called Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity. On sale at the table when oh. you come in. Is it? Yeah. But it's a phrase that my father used when he sent a telegram to President John Kennedy in 1963 when President Kennedy invited my father and a group of other clergy to have a meeting about civil rights. And my father said, the hour calls for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. So um, in that book, my f in the essay that my father wrote had to do with the anticipation of Yom Kippur. It's just two pages, and I think it's an extraordinary essay. It means a lot to me. Um, in that essay, he talked about what it means to get ready to anticipate 
the coming of Yom Kippur, this great day, and the preparation that goes into that day, the preparation that starts a month ahead of time and grows in intensity with each day as we get closer, the idea of Yom Kippur and what it means, if you think about it, what it means to spend a day fasting and praying and asking for forgiveness beforehand from your friends and on that day, asking God to forgive us and speaking in the first person plural, which means that we take upon ourselves all of the transgressions of everyone in the community. So a question, the reason I bring that up That's is the that- you don't get to eat. Yeah, <laughs> is the issue of anticipation. And I think it's so important that we keep Shabbat when it starts, when the sun begins to set. So in our home, Friday was a busy day. Friday was a busy day. My mother was a pianist, and she practiced the piano every day for several hours. In fact, when my parents became engaged to be married, my mother didn't want a diamond ring. She wanted a piano, and my father bought her a Steinway piano that I have. Yeah. So um, Friday, yes, it was busy. We went to the store. We had to go to the, in those days in New York on Broadway, there was a kosher butcher that had sawdust on the floor. I don't know if anybody here ever experienced that in those days. Yeah, good. And there was the kosher bakery party cake on 110th Street where we get challah, which was really dreadful challah in those days. <laughs> it was called water challah, and that's, it tasted like water, yeah. Uh, and the groceries and the cooking, and my mother didn't really like to cook, and she was also, uh, because my, my cousin David Strauss is here, our uncle was a pathologist who did research in heart disease. So this meant that there was no salt, uh, <laughs> no oil, and everything was, you know, had to be thoroughly cooked to get all the germs out, so uh, very well boiled. Anyway, <laughs> but Friday afternoon, there was some, it, it, bu it built up the nervousness, especially in the winter months when Shabbat begins early. My father would come home from, from the office early, of course, that day, and check that everything, you know, and get, he would be getting ready. And I remember he would say to me, you know, this, did, did we remember everything? That was it's always the question, and he would say, tell mommy to make water for Shabbos. That was the phrase he used, which I think is very funny. It's very sweet. But you have to boil the water ahead of time, and after it's boiled, and then you put the blech on the stove and then put the pot. Okay, I know what you're, you're wanting me to hurry up. I'm sorry. No, no, no. take your time. <laughs> take your time. My parents didn't often entertain. My father actually has an essay in that book. He says, entertainment is not what we need. We need celebration, and Shabbat was about celebration. My parents sometimes invited guests, but usually not. But we would go into the dining room, and that's where we had a, um, a sideboard with a tray that had the candlesticks. And when the time came, of course, everything stopped. All the cooking, all the hurrying, all the busyness, all the nervousness. If it wasn't cooked, it wouldn't be, that's it. It stopped. And we went in the dining room, and we kindled the lights. And then we would walk from the dining room into the living room, where the apartment window faced Riverside Drive. We were on the eighth floor and we could see the sun setting over the Hudson River. And I'll tell you, at one point when I was a child, I told my parents, you know, for some reason, I feel physically transformed in that moment. And I really did. I felt that it was, I, I became a different person. And we would sit in the living room, and we would talk, and it was quiet. 
and it was peaceful, and then we would go to the table. My father usually davened at home Friday night, by the way, because it was just too, too difficult, too busy to walk over to the seminary. Yeah. So we, we sat at the table, and Friday night, and we had chicken soup and chicken and boiled vegetables. We, we didn't have dessert. My father would take an apple, and he would peel it and try to make one piece of peel all the way around, and then we would share the apple for dessert. Um, we sang a little. My father always felt he had a bad voice, uh, and my mother also felt it, and I <laughs> do, in fact, have a bad voice. So. Yeah. I could say more, but I'll, I'll stop here. And the rhythm of Shabbat, Shabbat day for your dad? So Shabbat day, we went to the synagogue. Usually my father went first early. And then he used to tease me. The seminary, men sat on one side, women sat at the other. This is the, where the conservative movement was teaching its students how to be rabbis in the conservative movement. Those people in the faculty would never even daven in a conservative synagogue because the men and women sat together. Anyway, men and women sat together, and my father, told, he used to tease me, waiting for me to come to Shul to arrive. He returned to see if I had arrived, and he used to tease me that he was getting a sore neck from turning so many times. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to the seminary, and um, there was often a senior sermon. You remember those? I did one. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, walking home, the faculty would walk home. And uh, I remember, do you remember Abe Halkin? No, by name. Uh, so there were professors who would try to entertain me when I was a child to keep me going on the walk. And he was one of them. He was very sweet. And Max Arts, do you remember him mm -hmm. too? Yeah. And we would have lunch. And then my parents would both take a nap. And I had to be quiet, which was a horror to be quiet uh, and play in my room. And then my father would wake up. Very often, Elie Wiesel, before he got married, would come over and take a walk with my father in Riverside Park and then come back upstairs for tea. Sometimes my parents invited students from the seminary, and they would come to tea. And my mother would serve cheese and crackers. And, and then sometimes she would make, do you know what I, you know what, in Germany, remember Ken and Julie, the Herrentort, uh, which is a chocolate layer cake? But there was also a heron tort that was um, slices of bread, not sliced like a sandwich, but this way, uh, not, uh, so not vertically, but horizontally. And she would make layers inside of tuna salad or egg salad or herring salad. And then the whole thing would be frosted with a mixture of cream cheese and anchovy paste. <laughs> and it was very elaborate. It took about two hours to prepare. Anyway, so the students would come and sit at the table, and, and my father would ask them, about their lives, where they came from. And then it was time to, to daven, to daven marv, and to make havdalah. And, uh, and then Saturday night, my father would usually study at his desk, and my mother would play the piano, and I would do my homework. <laughs> <laughs> of the stories your father told of his growing up, he grew up in Warsaw, born in 1907. What are What's a story that you grew up with about his childhood and his Shabbat? Well, let's see. So I can tell you, my father, my father grew up in a Hasidic world. So his ancestors, as Rabbi Spitz said, were great Hasidic rebbe's, and everyone expected my father to be a rebbe. Also, he was also brilliant. 
he was brilliant, and he would be lifted onto the table when he was a little boy to give learned talks, and the adults would listen to his talks. And because he was the son of great rebbies, people would stand up when he entered the room as a gesture of respect. My father was the youngest. He had older sisters and an older brother, four older sisters. When my father was three, his oldest sister got married. So there was an age uh, range, big age range. And he was teased by his sisters and uh, adored. Uh, and he was, of course, very pious. He was the only son. No, there was an older brother was an also. Older brother. But when my father was nine, his father died in an epidemic, influenza epidemic. Uh, and the family was impoverished. My grandfather had chosen to live in a very, very poor Jewish neighborhood in Warsaw uh, out of choice. He wanted to help those, that community. My grandmother was the twin sister of the Novominska Rebbe. You know who that is. The, you should know this. The grandson of that Novominska Rebbe in Warsaw is today the head of a Agudas Yisrael. Yeah, my, my cousin in Borough Park. <laughs> I'm very proud of him. <laughs> I wrote him when he became appointed. I wrote him a Mazel Tov letter. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's great. Anyway, so um, so Shabbos was was at my grandfather's shtibel, uh, or at my father's mother's twin brother, the Novominsker shtibel. My father did once go with his older brother to the Gera Rebbe on Shabbos in Warsaw, and his mother wasn't too happy about it. My father's older brother, who had taken him, fell when they were walking home and broke his arm, and everyone took it as a simon or something. <laughs> <Son>. <laughs> and that Hasidic world in Warsaw, what, do you, what can you give, fill us in? What did that world look and feel like? I know with this Sabbath, when the Sabbath came out, it came out with a, another book called The Earth is the Lord, which, Earth is the Lord's, which is kind of a eulogy to Eastern European Jewish piety. When you read that book, um, The Earth is the Lord's, what, what <laughs> connected for you? You know, I read that book when I was very young. I was about seven or eight, and I remember reading it. It was a Shabbat afternoon, and I said to my father, but I know this already, because I had heard him speak about it so often yeah. um, that it was, yeah, it was familiar to me. But my father tried to capture there the spiritual life. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. First of all, I think that book is extraordinary also because of the woodcuts that were done by Ilya Shore, who was a close friend and a really magnificent artist. And I don't know of any other book where the, the illustrations and the text work together so beautifully. So. My father's lineage in Hasidism came from several directions. There was a more theoretical direction of Kabbalistic ideas that were altered into Hasidism in certain ways, but also a charismatic tradition that was very important to him and to his family. Maybe the best thing is if I give you an example. Sure. So there's a story that my father used to tell often First of all, my father was named for one of his great-great-great-grandfathers, who was the Abder Rav. He was a Hasidic Rebbe whose name was Avram Yeshua Heschel. And Heschel, by the way, is a first name. Yeah? <laughs> 
So he was a rav, which means most Hasidic rebbies were rebbies, but he was a rav, which means he could make halachic decisions. Um, and he was invited to come to Mezhbish, which was the town where the Baal Shem Tov was born, to become the rebbe there. He was invited by the grandson of the, of the Besht. The story is like this. He was very charismatic, very warm and loving, very generous. He had a big table and he invited people every, every Shabbat to come and eat at his table. There are stories about how he had dozens of, of challahs on Friday night on the table and fed people and so on. And he said, it's a refuah, it's a, it's a healing of your soul to eat on Shabbat in the community. You can, yeah? And he was very famous for that, healing people from depression. It was a very important thing. Anyway, the story is like this. People came to him every day from all over, dozens of people, and they asked him to pray for a sick child, for a sick spouse, to help get a parnasa to earn a living. And one day, his assistant asked him, how do you remember all of these people? and all of their problems. And he said, when somebody comes to me and they pour out their troubles, I open my heart and their troubles come in and make a scar. And when I go to pray, I open my heart and I say, look God at all these scars. And my father liked to tell that story about him. And I'll just tell you that I think uh, my father was that kind of person as well. When I talked to him, I knew, I knew it was going into his heart. And I think other people had that feeling about him as well. And I think we all know what it's like to talk to someone who hears us with that kind of heart, you know? This is, you can tell. And I think everybody hopes for that, too. Now, he was a prodigy. <laughs> Give us an example of his talent as a young boy. I mean, you shared one with him on the table um, teaching. Is there another example you'd give of his uh, t natural, prodigious talent? Um, well, you know, um, childhood talent is one thing, but as he matured, he, he was writing short essays for Hebrew newspapers in Warsaw when he was young about uh, rabbis of the Talmud, for instance. But then he decided he wanted to study. He went first to a gymnasium in Vilna for a year, and then he went to the University of Berlin. He arrived in 1927, so he was 20 years old. And for him, he described it as arriving at the center of the intellectual universe. It was thrilling. And he studied at the University of Berlin. He studied philosophy. He studied art history. He studied oriental studies. And he also went to both of the rabbinical schools in Berlin, the Orthodox and the Reform. And that's something that really nobody did. Now, These are two. Now, why did he? He wanted to know how people think. He was so open. So he was Orthodox. He had Orthodox smicha from, from Warsaw. He was already rabbi. He didn't go to become how a rabbi. How old was he when he got the smicha in Warsaw? Oh, he was about eight, 17. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> 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 so there he is in Berlin, between the wars, the most exciting city, intellectually vibrant. What do you know about his time in Berlin? Oh, he talked about it a lot, and I love to hear about it. I love to hear about what it was like when he was a student. And I love to imagine, what if I had been a student in those days? What would it have been like? And he, he described the thrill of it, the lectures, the professors that he studied with, the people that he met. And he would go to concerts. And he would go to lectures, and he would go to poetry groups. You know that the, the, 
you were either a fan of Rilke or you were a fan of Stefan Georga, these two great German poets. And he went to both. <laughs> but Rilke was really the one. He loved Rilke, without question, yes. <laughs> Don't we all? I mean, really. <laughs> yes. So, um, so but yes, he did that. He had friends. He rented a room. He was impoverished. He talked about what that was like, too, that he couldn't afford anything other than potatoes. He used to, for a long time, he just ate potatoes for lunch and dinner. That was it. Um, he would rent a room from a family, and he lived in different parts of the city at different times. He was very observant. He finished his dissertation in December of 1932, and he took his doctoral exams in February of 33. And the professors, I looked up the, the records from the university, the professors wrote, he seemed nervous. <laughs> you know, a Jew is nervous in 1933. <laughs> <laughs> now his dissertation was on the prophets. Talk about why he chose that topic and what the prophets meant to him. Is Linda here? Linda's back there. Where? Back there. Where are you? Oh, My there Linda? you are. Yeah. <laughs> Linda, because you know when we were talking earlier tonight about the work that you do on epilepsy, my immediate association was to biblical scholarship. You might think that's odd to go from neurology to biblical scholarship, but in fact, in my father's dissertation, he points out in the footnotes how many scholars of the Bible said that the prophets weren't experiencing revelation. No, they were suffering from epilepsy. <laughs> Yeah, so um, he, he was fed up with biblical studies. He was interested in the, in the experience of the prophets. It's not just what they said, but what, what did it mean to be a prophet? What was the inner experience? And let me just give you an example that he used to tell me about. He, he had a professor called Torchiner. He was a, became famous also under the name Torsinai after he moved to Israel. So, yeah, you know, Professor Torchiner, yes. You did. Oh, so my father studied with him. So, <laughs> so my father described in class, uh, going into class, they were studying Isaiah. And you know a famous verse in Isaiah, it says, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Now, in those days, biblical scholars were trying to correct the text, amend the text, to come up with the original, pristine version of the text. So he said, the professor says, look, it says, Nachamu, Nachamu, comfort ye, comfort ye, two times. Why? Because the scribe, yeah, you, you know it's coming. The scribe was copying it down, and he got momentarily distracted. <laughs> he forgot that he wrote it a second time. <laughs> so there was no sense for the beauty, for the magnificence of this passage. So he tried to call our attention to what it meant to be a prophet. What is prophetic consciousness? What kind of religious experience are they talking about? And what he did was really to bring some traditional rabbinic ideas to bear on the Bible. So in the rabbinic Judaism, there's a phrase, tzorach gavoha, a divine need. And he said, this is, what, this is what the Bible is telling us, that God needs us, that there is a divine pathos, that God responds to us, that God at times gets upset with us, and angry even, and sometimes is very sympathetic. But there is a, a subjectivity to God, and that's what the prophets are conveying to us. What is divine subjectivity? Can I give you one sure. other? I, just ca I came across, not so long ago, just by chance, a very small 
one-line teaching of the Abdurab, this Hasidic ancestor of my father's, where he says something really amazing. He says, you know, we human beings anthropomorphize God. We speak about God in human language, the finger of God, the arm of God, yes? And then he says, but how do we look from God's point of view? And I thought, wow, you know, you can't, once you begin to put that into words, to spell that out, you're already anthropomorphizing. But what does it mean for human beings to be imaged by God in divine terms? So he, the Aptarav was turning it around, saying, let's not just be centered on ourselves and our own point of view, but understand that there is a divine point of view. And that's something that you find all the way through all of my father's books, all of his writings, God in search of man. So what does that mean? That's, that's a book I've been studying closely for the last year. God in Search of Man. How does that define your father's theology? Well, you know, I think my father is representing an old tradition within Judaism. He sees it in the prophets, in his Hebrew book, Torah Menashemayim, in rabbinic thought. And of course, it's clear in anyone who's read a Kabbalistic text or a Hasidic text, it's there. So what does it mean to, to decenter ourselves in that sense and to think about how we look from God's point of view? As he's, my father said in his last television interview, how was it for God when the first family, there's Adam and Eve and they have two sons and one kills the other? What does that mean? What does it mean for God to continue to have faith in human beings? We're always asking, oh, can I believe her? You know, can God keep faith in us? How? And what do we do? What does it mean, the words of the Kaddish, you know? Yitkadal v'yitkadash. May there be more of God in this world. May God be magnified, made more. And how do we do that? God wants us to respond and to, to do things like what? Here's the innovation of my father. In in traditional Kabbalah, classical Kabbalistic texts, we're told, and in actually in a Kabbalistic Siddur, a prayer book, before you make a prayer, you're trying to bring about a reunion of the masculine and feminine aspects of God, right? Of the Shekhinah with the Kaddish Baruch Okay. And you say a prayer. And this is important to bring about redemption <coughs> because God is in exile with us and God needs to be redeemed. And we do this by being observant, by... Praying with kavanah, with devotion. All right. My father says not only that way, but also how we treat other people. So it's not only the mitzvot that we do, such as Shabbat, making Kiddush, but also, you know, the way we treat other human beings. Justice. Are we fair? Are we honest? How do we treat one another? That also has an impact on God. Because think about it. If we are made in God's image, if God needs us, what, what can we do to make this world more filled with God's presence, except the way we treat one another? I would say like the Aptarav, the way he listened to people, you know, that brings more God into this world. So go back to the timeline with your father's unfolding. He's in Berlin, 1933. How does he wound up, wind up coming to America? So my father was in Germany. 
he couldn't get his PhD until he published the dissertation. That was the rule. And in Germany, what publisher is going to publish a book by a Jew on the prophets? So finally, he was able to get the dissertation published in Poland and get permission from the university to accept it for the PhD. It took almost three years. I have letters from his dean signed, Heil Hitler, horrible. And, um, and I just want you to know something. The person who was professor of Old Testament at the University of Berlin was a man named Johannes Hempel, who was also the editor of the most important journal of Old Testament scholarship. And I, I wrote a book about Nazis some years ago, and I discovered this man had been a very big Nazi, very big, anti-Semitic in the worst ways. Yeah? And these are the kinds of people my father had to deal with. So uh, in 1935, there was the anniversary of the birth of the Rambam, and there were a lot of books that were being published, and my father was asked by a publisher, would you like to write a book, a biography? So he did in three weeks. In three weeks, he wrote that. He wrote articles in Jew medieval Jewish philosophy. He also wrote a book on Abravanel. And he tried desperately to get a job in another country to get out of Germany. And it was very difficult. In October of 38, the Nazis arrested all the Polish Jews. And he was deported to Poland. And he was in Warsaw. And at the last minute, the Hebrew Union College, where Julian Morgenstern was the, the head, the president, Morgenstern was going to the State Department to get visas to save Jewish scholars. And you know they had no money at HUC in Cincinnati, but he wanted to save people, and it was terribly difficult. The State Department, you know what it was like. Finally, he, they grudgingly, he managed to get, through the intervention of Morgenthau, five visas to bring out Jews. And my father was one of the five. And he came to this country in March of 1940. He was in Cincinnati for five years teaching and desperately trying to save his mother. And then there were three sisters who were killed. He had one sister, the oldest one, who had gotten out before. And his brother had gotten to England. Now here he was, you shared, you know, deeply pious in his own practice. And HUC in Cincinnati was the center for the reform movement. Did that, what was that like for him, coming to become a faculty member at the reform seminary? Well, you know, he had studied in Berlin at the Reform as well as the Orthodox, so yeah. he had some exposure. But there was such a difference. It, students in, in Europe who came really knew Hebrew very well and could read Hebrew texts. He also knew Arabic, by the way, which is very interesting. My father did as well. Knew Arabic? Oh, Your yeah. father knew Arabic? Yeah, my father knew Arabic. Now, did he know English before? How well did he know English before he, he came didn't. out of? He didn't. No. Now, I pause, because all of us have read Heschel, <laughs> and you know his poetic sensibility around language in English. What a talent. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you know what he said? When he came to this country, he went to the post office, and he bought some stamps, you know, and the woman handed the stamps, and he said, thank you. And then she said to him, you're welcome. And he never forgot that. He found that so beautiful. You're welcome. <laughs> It meant so much. <laughs> but the students at HUC helped him learn English. He lived in a room in the dormitory. He earned $500 a year. A he year. Had a, a year. <laughs> a year. He had a little refrigerator because he couldn't eat. It was not kosher at HUC, sadly. Yeah. And he went to Rabbi Eliezer Silver's synagogue in Cincinnati. And he desperately tried to save people. I have letters that he received. Uh, from people who were desperate to get out. And that's and 1940 to 1945. Yes. So really the war years he spent in Cincinnati. 
He spent the war in Cincinnati. Yeah. Clearly, it touches you because that was a time in which there was the distance from his family and the sense of impotence and doing much to get them out. Yeah, and uh, so my uh, my grandmother was in Warsaw, in the Warsaw ghetto, with uh, two two daughters, and my other aunt was in Vienna with her husband. And uh, my father had a friend in Berlin whose name was Arthur Spanier, who was head of the Hebrew section of the Staatsbibliothek in, Ber in the, the state library. And he had of Hebrew manuscripts, and he lost his job, of course, as a Jew and ended up in Amsterdam. And my father was writing to him uh, to ask him to send money through the Red Cross to, to my grandmother in Warsaw, which he did. Uh, and I have letters from this man. He was killed, Arthur Spanier. But the letters are so extraordinary because you can see immediately what a, what a fine person he was, a person of great, of great refinement and so, um, so much like many of the European Jewish scholars I met growing up, my parents' friends, they were, um, they were so refined. Uh, and um, so, yes, and they would talk about Germany and German, German literature, German philosophy. I knew as a child, I knew all of these names, uh, all the great names, Jewish thinkers and German thinkers. They talked about German literature and poetry. I don't, I, I honestly, we've, I felt even like a tourist in America. Uh, it was, I don't think anybody ever talked about American <coughs> literature, which is a great literature, but they weren't reading Hawthorne or, I mean, I can't, I, you know, I don't know. To me, I think, <laughs> what I tell them, read this novel by Melville about a whale, they wouldn't want to How did your dad meet your mom? They met. They met at a dinner party at the home of Jacob Marcus, who was a professor in Cincinnati at HUC. My mother grew up in Cleveland, and she came to Cincinnati to study with her piano teacher, Severin Eisenberger, who was a great pianist. His daughter was Agnes Eisenberger, just passed away, who was an impresario. She was the, the agent for Alfred Brendel, for example. Anyway, she studied with Severin Eisenberger, and she was invited to the home of Marcus because Mrs. Marcus was a pianist. And there was a dinner party. Eric Werner, the great musicologist, was also there that evening. And after dinner, they asked my mother to play. And so she played, and my father fell in love with her. <laughs> and, uh, and he, um, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, he was, he was impoverished. It was toward the end of his time in Cincinnati. And so when they went out on a date, uh, they would go um, to have a glass of beer, which became a kind of tradition. And my parents didn't really drink, but. A glass of beer was something exciting. It was to celebrate. <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a glass of beer. Do you know how he proposed to her? Yes. Yes, and I even have a picture from yeah. that night. Yes, in New York City. In, they were he the proposed this in was after they had both moved to New York City uh, separately for different reasons. Uh, my, mother was, um, my mother played for Arthur Rubenstein in Los Angeles, and he suggested that she studied with Edward Steuermann, who was living in New York. So she went to New York, not knowing that my father was in New York, but somehow then they, they heard, and they met and married. Mm -hmm. And they got married in Los Angeles, where my mother's parents were living. Rabbi Rottenberg performed the wedding. Did you know him? I knew him, oh, but yeah. I didn't know Rabbi Rottenberg did the wedding. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Mm. So 
your dad went from Cincinnati to New York. We talked about this briefly. A lot of people think it's because he needed something more traditional at the Jewish Theological Seminary, more Orthodox colleagues, but there's more to it. Tell us about the transition from Cincinnati <laughs> to New York. Oh, well, let's see. So I, first of all, let me just tell you, this is very important to me, that my father raised me with tremendous gratitude to the reform movement and to Hebrew Union College for saving his life. And in fact, when I had a bat mitzvah, he invited Julian Morgenstern, who was at the time too old, he couldn't come, but he, the gratitude was always there. He didn't repudiate the reform movement. He criticized the reform movement, but he also criticized the conservative movement and the orthodox. <laughs> That's just who he was, of course. He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. So um, he, but he went to New York uh, because it was New York, because his sister had m married their cousin, the, the Kapitschnitzer Rebbe, and he was living in the Lower East Side on Henry Street. So he had family there, and because it's New York. And he did hope that he would get some better students in New York than he had had in Cincinnati, students who had um, greater fluency with Hebrew, for example, who could read primary sources more easily. So he taught at the Jewish Theological Seminary. <laughs> Say a word about that, about teaching. I know the Jewish <laughs> Theological Seminary in those days was very academic in its orientation. And he was more involved with the nature of religion and the need for God, that created a gap, I know. What would you say about his teaching at the seminary? You know, we were talking about Ed Feinstein, the rabbi yes. in uh, LA, and uh, he was a rabbi. I once went to a discussion that he led for young people, <laughs> and uh, young, I mean. <laughs> uh, I was teaching in Dallas at the time, and, and so we got together, and you know Dallas. Um, so, uh, <laughs> <there> <laughs> Uh, so one uh, woman said, you know, my co-workers, this is at the synagogue, and were, my co-workers, she said, are evangelical Christians. And they're always talking about their relationship with Jesus and with God. And, I, I, and they ask me, and I don't know what to say. What do I, what is my, as a Jew, do I have a relationship? <laughs> and Ed, Ed said to her, with sadness, he said, you know, I spent seven years at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and never once did anybody talk about God. Now, this was some time ago. I'm sure things have changed since then. I hope. I don't know. And actually. he was a student after your but dad had he was stopped after. teaching. But in my father's day, theology was absurd. There is no such thing as Jewish theology, people said. Yiddish was bad. Yiddish was, you didn't say good Shabbos, you said Shabbat Shalom. Yiddish was bad. Hebrew was bad. Kabbalah, Hasidut, forget it. So uh, this was not a place where they welcomed my father's approaches. They actually hoped he would continue writing articles about medieval Jewish philosophy uh, and not write theology. And then, look, my father told me the last thing, <laughs> never go into <laughs> academic life. I'm looking at my friends. Don't. It's too mean-spirited, and it is. <laughs> it's just a really mean-spirited profession. It's that people are mean, you know? Yeah. Right. The, the, more, the more success you have, the more enemies you have. Believe me. You're an academic. Mind you, she didn't follow his advice. <laughs> so at the seminary, yes. Listen, you know that story about Freud's father's hat being knocked off in the gutter, you know? And oh, oh, what a try. His father's hat was knocked off by an anti-Semite in Europe. I mean, I think it probably happened every day. But okay. 
and there's what a trauma, et cetera. Okay, my parents would walk home from the synagogue on Shabbat morning and talk about F and L and all the mischief they were doing and the terrible things, F and L. And I said to them, fine, listen, you think I don't know who F and L are? <laughs> Fiegelstein and Lieberman? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of tension and mean-spiritedness, and it was very difficult. Now I'm going to back up to Berlin for a moment and then move on to your dad's involvement with social action. But there are these stories, maybe may apocrypha stories, about how the three future leaders of Jewish life of the 20th century were all friends in Berlin, at this, living there at the same time, namely your dad, Joseph Salvagic Harav, and the Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, were all living in Berlin at the same time. What do you know about their, your dad's relationship to the other two, both in Berlin and later when he got to New York? They certainly knew each other. I wouldn't say that they were particularly close, but they knew each other. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, they didn't entirely overlap in their, in their interests uh, or their years, but uh, uh, yes. And then, and then, of course, they knew each other in the United States after the war. I heard that at the seminary, the professor your dad was probably closest to was Mordechai Kaplan. Inter that may not be true, but that they both, sh so I want to know, but, they, <laughs> but that they both shared in common, in contrast to the other faculty members, a sense of theology, yes. even though very different theologies. You know, there's been a tendency lately, <laughs> that's the reason I, I look <laughs> that way, um, for people who are adherents of Mordechai Kaplan, who's the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, to say that he and my, Kaplan and my father were very uh, similar in their thinking. And while there may be some similarities, I think the differences are, the most, uh, most important aspects of their thought really are, take them in very different directions. So I don't see it in that sense. But yes, Kaplan was there, he, I think he left the seminary shortly after uh, my father got there, but they were good friends, they socialized. And uh, Kaplan had read an essay of my father's and loved it, uh, and uh, an analysis of piety, it was called, appeared in the Journal of Religion. Uh, that I reprinted it in Moral Grandeur. And he was one of the people who, on the faculty at the seminary, who wanted my father to come to teach there, to join the faculty. And that's, that's very interesting and important. And Kaplan was, was a strong Zionist, and he was certainly liberal in his thinking, uh, and very concerned with Jewish peoplehood. And he wore trellis in his tzitzis. Really? Yes. <laughs> There's a blue thread in, in his uh, talit, which was very unusual. My father did, too. I think he was the only one at the seminary. Um, so, uh, so there was some friendliness uh, between them, but Kaplan's thinking was very different. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they were that close. They were on friendly terms. When I say they socialized, it might have been once every five or six or seven years. Mm -hmm. But when, when Kaplan's 90th birthday was celebrated at the Waldorf, I was there, and my father was asked to give the keynote address, and he did. And he spoke very warmly about now, Dr. Kaplan. Now, Dr. Kaplan was the first to have his daughter bat mitzvah in America. And you mentioned in passing you had a bat mitzvah. I did. So talk about your bat mitzvah. I mean, that again, we're talking about somebody as you shared earlier tonight, who would, your dad, in terms of his own piety, the first thing he would do every morning was wash his hands and say a blessing. 
So he was very steeped in the world from which he came. And he had a daughter, and only a daughter. So you only. I mean, not <laughs> only in that way. <laughs> We're going to get in a moment to, to Susanna's important work on Jewish feminism. No, no, no. But, <laughs> but, but your bat mitzvah, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. in the sense of a celebration for the next generation. Talk about your bat mitzvah. You know what I'm saying? I, when right. I, my first, both of my babies were, were girls, it turns out. But anyway, <laughs> when my first one was born, my cousin called me to comfort me. <laughs> and she said, girls are nice too. <laughs> no, but my father, first of all, you should just know that when yeah. I, I would say things like, if study and prayer is so important, I should be part of it. Yeah. Uh, and he always agreed with me. So I never had an argument with him about women's issues. And when we, at the table, at the dinner table, when we made Berkata Mazon, it was the three of us, and he counted me in the Mazuman and my mother too, of course. So you and need three adults in order to do yeah, and traditionally an introductory three men. blessing, right? But I didn't even know that they were women. I, it wasn't an issue. <laughs> it wasn't debated. We didn't have these uh, shulchan or kinds of discussions like no. that. <laughs> At any rate, yes. So my so bat mitzvah. So I wanted a bat mitzvah. I told my parents. So it was your initiative. My initiative, and I yeah. wanted it at 13, and I wanted it on Shabbat morning. And so my parents invited the chancellor, Louis Finkelstein, <laughs> the to F. tea. <laughs> the F of the F and L. The F, the F. <laughs> <laughs> and he had always been very friendly to me. I used to love to shake his hand and shake it for when I was very small. His nickname was the Handshaker, and he, he used to send me postcards. We had a very sweet relationship when I was a child. So we came to tea, and my parents let me do the talking. <laughs> so how, how old were you at that point? I was 12. Yeah. And I asked him, what do you think about the civil rights movement? This is what year? I don't oh, remember. No. Yeah. I mean, civil rights I was movement 11, was going 12, on. But it was in the, the 60s. 60s. Yeah. And he was very proud. Oh, well, it's very important to Martin Luther King. And I brought him to the seminary to speak. And it's very important to me. And I was very all in favor of uh, equality. And so, on. so I let him talk. <laughs> and then I said, well, and what about equality for women? Uh, I said, I want a bat mitzvah. And then his whole demeanor changed. <laughs> and he said, we'll, I'll make you a party in my house and we'll have cookies. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, that was not so. My father instead went to Anshe Chesed, which was a conservative synagogue on 100th Street and Weston Avenue. And he spoke to the rabbi, who was a wonderful man, Joseph Sternstein, who cooperated with everything. So they, that Shabbat morning, there was no organ, no choir, no cantor. People, friends of my father's from the seminary, led the, the service of davening in Hebrew. And uh, now, how did, what did we do? I want you to know, I, nobody had had, I'd never attended a bat mitzvah before. It, nobody had a bat mitzvah in my world. And it was very unusual in the conservative movement. Maybe on a Friday night, okay. So I said I wanted to do the Haftorah. It never occurred to me even to ask to read from the Torah. It never occurred, that was beyond. <laughs> <laughs> so I want a Haftorah and I prepared that. My father took the Aliyah, the Maftir Aliyah, he was called to the Torah for halachic reasons. And then I chanted the blessings over the Haftorah, and I read the Haftorah. Then, <laughs> and my parents 
request, I gave two speeches, one in Hebrew, one in English. And that was my bat mitzvah. My parents told everybody, appropriately, no presents. This is not about presents. And they had, um, there was a kiddush in the synagogue, and then on Sunday afternoon, they had a sort of open house, and various friends of theirs dropped by. And that was my bat mitzvah, and it was lovely, and it was wonderful, mm. and it meant a great deal to me. And Where did you get important. the idea that you wanted a bat mitzvah? Boys were having bar mitzvahs. But you didn't know other girls at the I time I didn't know any girls, it? no. Yeah. I just felt if that's, you know, why shouldn't I? So we're going to come back. I keep one eye on the watch. This is a little longer interview because I'm having a good time. <laughs> um, but I'll come back to, you know, the orange on your Seder plate? Oh. But we'll come <laughs> no, back later because no, that's no. something Susanna <laughs> no, no. initiated. But we'll come back to that in terms of... But where I wanted to go was, was first your, your father's engagement in the 60s with Vatican II, 62 to 65 in discussions with the Vatican about the relationship of the church to Jews. I know that he was brought on by one of his students, Rabbi Mark Tenenbaum, who was from the American Jewish Committee, to be, he wanted more significant voice than his own, so he brought on his teacher, Rabbi Heschel, to meet with Pope John the 23rd. Is that right? Actually, yes, but then he passed so away, so it was Pope Paul VI, yes. Pope Paul VI, so yeah. talk about your dad's, how did your dad get in, back to Warsaw, a world apart, being in the Hasidic world to becoming a interlocutor for the Pope? How did that come about and what did it mean to your dad? You know, it, it really is extraordinary because when my father was growing up, he didn't know Christians. When he was a child in Warsaw, he crossed the street rather than walk in front of a church. Now, of course, when he was in Berlin, yes, he had professors who were Christian, and, and he, yeah, you know, it's one of the tragedies. So these two rabbinical schools in Berlin were on the same street. They didn't uh, talk to each other, and the street was called Artillery Street, by the way. <laughs> but right next to that reform seminary, the Hochschule, next door was the, was the dormitory for the students of Protestant theology. But there was no relationship, which is tragic. Anyway, um, my father came to this country from a, from a place in Germany, you know, it's not only Hempel who was a Nazi, and really big, yeah, but these were Christian theologians who said that the Old Testament is a Jewish book, and it has no place in the Christian Bible, let's throw it out. They stopped reading from the, from the Old Testament. And then there were people who said, no, you should keep the Old Testament. It's not really a Jewish book. It's an anti-Semitic book because the prophets are always condemning Israel for its sins. So you can <laughs> keep it. This kind of an argument. And Jesus is an Aryan and not a Jew, and Hitler is doing what Jesus wanted to do, which is to end Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. And then he came to this country, and he published his book, Man is Not Alone. And I have to point out that my father wrote so many books in such a short period of time. He married my mother in 1946, and he started writing, The Earth is the Lord's, The Sabbath, Man is Not Alone, God in Search of Man, Man's Quest for God, all within six years. It's incredible. So um, The Man is Not Alone was reviewed by Reinhold Niebuhr in the New York Herald Tribune one Sunday. This is before I was born. My parents talked about it. It was extraordinary. My father felt all those years, including in my childhood, first of all, that Reinhold Niebuhr was really a great man. He always emphasized that to me. You know what he did when Will Herberg, the Jewish sociologist, wanted to convert to Christianity? Niebuhr said, you go back and study Judaism. 
this was amazing. Yeah. This really meant something to my father. And my father always looked at things in a historical context. Look what it means for a Christian theologian to say, go study Judaism. Anyway, so my father felt under, better understood by Christians than by Jews for a long time because the Jews were saying, we don't even have Jewish theology. There is no such <laughs> thing. People used to come up to me at the seminary when I was a child, and they would say to me, this is unbelievable, but this, over to, they would say to me, your father's work is just poetry. You say that to a child, go up to a child and insult the father? What kind of a person <laughs> does this? And what do you mean just <laughs> Shakespeare, huh, Julia? <laughs> just poetry, what? <laughs> what? There you go. <laughs> you know Julia Lepton, yeah, Julia, yeah. they're members of this congregation. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> She's the greatest Shakespeare scholar we have. Did you know that? Yeah, she is. Okay, so that's what they would say to me. <laughs> Just poetry, you can imagine. Anyway, so my father, you know, you think about all of these things. Uh, it's amazing. Yes, he, he sat down with Christian theologians, and he talked to them, and he engaged with them, and they engaged with him. Uh, maybe I'll tell you something personal about it? Sure. So they came to our home, and I don't know which story to tell. There are two stories. Oh, one is funny one. Okay, I'll tell you the funny one first. So Father Morlean. Father Morlean was a, an official Vatican representative who came to New York, and he met with my father one Friday afternoon. My father said, why don't you come home for dinner? And he called my mother and said, an extra place. So Father Morlean came. It was a traditional Shabbat dinner. And the chicken, the soup, and the very boiled, the string beans. <laughs> <And, laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> and at the end of the meal, Father Morley and said, oh, thank you. It was so lovely, you know, a wonderful dinner to be with you. But of course, you know, we Catholics are not supposed to eat meat on Friday. Oh, my parents were so upset. <gasps> they were so embarrassed and so apologetic. I'm so sorry, so sorry. And then Father Morley and said, don't worry. There's a higher law not to embarrass your host. <laughs> <laughs> so then, that's not all. So then a few months later, Father Morlean writes from Rome. You know, these are all serious negotiations going on in the meantime about Nostra Etate, et cetera. And he's coming to New York, and my father invited him again for Shabbat dinner and told my mother. My mother had several months to prepare, so she called up Fanny Ushko, her friend in Queens, to get recipes for fish. And she was going to make three different kinds of fish. And I went with her to the Bloomingdale's, and we bought one of those dishes to, to serve fish, you know, they used to make that looks like a fish. <laughs> I still have it, the fish, the fish. So she made a big milchik Friday night dinner, dairy dinner, which is very unusual, Friday night. And you put out three fish, though, and Father Morlean came, and a few other people. And at the end of the meal, Father Morlean, guess what he said? He said, thank you so much, lovely dinner, but... I was hoping for a traditional Shabbat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then I'll just tell you something more on a more serious level. I think what was really the impact of my father was simply his presence. It wasn't some formulation that he made. He did write a very important essay called No Religion is an Island said, you know, what happens in one affects it. When the Christians in Germany, these Nazis, when they disgrace their own religion, it's a shanda, it affects everybody. Everybody says, how can you be religious in any religion when people behave like that? Religious theologians write such things. 
it, it demeans religion. So, so we wrote this essay, and he was also teaching for a year at Union Theological Seminary. But I think people came. People came to our home Friday night, nuns, priests, ministers. William Sloan Coffin, my father would, loved him. My father would put his hand on Bill Coffin's arm, and he said, let me teach you hamotzi in Hebrew. He would teach him the words. And I think when I look back at those visitors, I, and I remember them, I remember their faces, I think that this was not just a visit, this was a pilgrimage to come to our home on Friday night for the first time. You know, those days, Christians didn't know Jews. They hadn't experienced Shabbat. It's not like today where they have churches make a Pesach Seder, you know. They came, and it was a pilgrimage, you know, you could say to the womb of their own religion. It was really quite remarkable. And, um, and they came, and they looked at my father, and he, and he said, they made Kiddush and Amotzi. He never reproached Christians. He never said, what about the Holocaust, the Vatican, the Antisemitism? He never talked like that. I think for them to experience this, all of a sudden they realized, how can we say that Jews don't go to heaven? That this person won't go to heaven? They started to question their own doctrines. You know, and for them it was also, I think, a kind of theological revolution to realize that they had something to learn about God from a Jew. You know, 2,000 years, 2,000 years ago they did, right? And now again. Now Vatican II, Nostra Aetate, transformed the Catholic Church's relationship to Judaism. Talk about that transformation and your father's role in it. So my father's meetings uh, were with a whole variety of theologians and church officials and so on in Rome and in this country. Cardinal Bea was the cardinal in charge of this issue, and he came to New York, and my father met with him. And my father, I have to say, was always very cordial, and I learned a lesson because I once somebody arranged for me to meet the Cardinal of Vienna, and I was very, very uncomfortable meeting him. Just didn't, I, I, and I was not very warm. Um, and I later looked again at the pictures of my father meeting the Pope and meeting Cardinal Bea, and how warm and gracious he was, and that was a lesson for me. So my father's discussions had to do with the formulation, and in particular, the issue of conversion. The first document, Nostra Aetate, was all right. The first draft was all right. And then the second draft hoped for the eventual conversion of the Jews. My father met with Pope Paul VI, and he was told later that after that meeting, the Pope took out a pen and crossed it out. My father had issued a statement when that second draft came out. He said, I would rather go to Auschwitz than give up my faith. And at that time, I was a child. I was terrified. I thought, it somehow seemed, what, possible? I, I yeah. Anyway, so the third, final version was much better, and it was really quite special. There's a very good book about it by John Connolly uh, on this formulation. From Enemy to Brother is the title. He teaches here at Berkeley. And really transformed, created interfaith dialogue for the first time, and for the first time said that Jews get to go to heaven, that God did not um, negate the covenant with the Jewish people, that that's eternal. Martin Luther, we're going to 
shift now to the other two aspects of your father's social activism, Martin Luther King and then the Vietnam War, and they're a bit intertwined. Mm -hmm. So talk about how Reverend King came into your family's life. Uh, so my father, my father, as you, uh, this was 1963. My father had no colleagues on the faculty of the Jewish Theological Seminary who were black, and no students. Everybody was Jewish there. Uh, and my father's life was pretty s narrow in the sense that he w went every day to his office and he came home. Uh, and occasionally he would go to give a lecture somewhere out of town. But it was, it was a circumscribed life. Anyway, he was invited to Chicago to give a lecture at a conference on religion and race. Two words that he said should never be uttered in the same breath. Because they're diametrically opposed. So he went and he gave the speech and he said in this speech, <laughs> he opened it by saying, when was the first conference on religion and race? When Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. <laughs> so, but you know what's so striking? There's a new book by James Cone called The Lynching Tree, a small book where he talks about my father and Niebuhr talking about racism in those years. And he says, my father's right and he's true. My father's speeches were so passionate. He was so emotional when he talked about racism. Now you can say, of course, he had the experience in Germany and he brought that to this. But still, he points out in that book, James Cohn, that Niebuhr finally met James Baldwin. They had a dialogue and then Niebuhr became even more engaged. My father didn't, never met James Baldwin, <laughs> never had that kind of relationship, but he was very passionate and he met Dr. King in Chicago, and they immediately, as we say now, bonded. <laughs> they <laughs> immediately felt a spiritual connection over the Bible and the prophets. It was amazing, and I think that's very important for us. You know the, the famous relationship between Moses Mendelssohn and Gotthold Lessing in the 19th century in Berlin, and everybody talks about this amazing, this Jew and a Christian, and they sat together, and they played chess, and they discussed philosophy, and they drank tea. How amazing, and that becomes a symbol for modern Jewish history, and I think my father's relationship with Dr. King is a kind of bookend. It's an amazing relationship that he both went beyond the confines of their own community. Dr. King made the exodus the central motif of the civil rights movement. Think what that meant to my father. You come from Germany where they're throwing the Old Testament out of the Bible, and then here is the exodus, the central? So, and then the civil rights movement Everybody, every time I meet somebody from those days, they hug me. They loved my father. They're grateful. Andrew Young and Reverend C.T. Williams and so many of the people that I've met, Fred Shuttlesworth and John Lewis and so on. Anyway, they're very grateful. Now, the th your father's famous line from marching in that iconic photo with uh, Reverend King in Birmingham is as I walked my feet were praying. Because that is one of the lines most identified with your father, what would you say about it and that march? So that was, that was the march in Selma. My father was invited Selma. on a Friday afternoon to go down and it was a scary time. You remember Bloody Sunday just a couple of weeks before. And so Saturday night, we made Abdallah, and we went downstairs, and my father kissed me goodbye. And I, I remember it very vividly because I, I was very, very attentive in that moment. I didn't know if he would come back. 
and he got in the taxi and went to the airport. And when he came back from that march, he said that Dr. King told him it was the greatest day of his life. My father said he felt there was holiness in that march. He was reminded of walking with Hasidic rebbies. He used to say, if there's any hope for the future of Judaism in America, it lies with the black church, by the way, because he felt that there was a spirit there that reminded him of Eastern Europe. So he came back and he said, I felt my legs were praying. And there were times when he brought Dr. King to speak about Soviet Jews to conventions of rabbis, for example. And there was a big debate in our house whether Dr. King should speak out against the war in Vietnam. My father had started an organization called Clergy and Laymen Concerned About Vietnam, together with Bill Coffin and Father Daniel Berrigan and John Bennett and those days Richard John Newhouse, who changed. Um, and uh, and there was, that was the question, what should they do? Should he speak out? It would alienate Congress, it would alienate the president. And finally, Dr. King spoke and he gave a great speech, one of his three best speeches at Riverside Church in April of 1967, a year before he was assassinated, against the war in Vietnam. It was magnificent. I was there that night. It was extraordinary. And yeah, that year, uh, the Kings were going to come to our Passover Seder. And Dr. King, uh, in 68, a year later, he was assassinated that just a few days before Passover. And instead, my father went first to Memphis for that demonstration, and then we all went to the funeral in Atlanta. And you know, I wonder, and you, you can think about it too, what would it have been like? What if you had Martin Luther King at your Passover Seder? What would you talk about? <laughs> what would you discuss? Mm. What would it be like? Yeah. And how did the Seder feel, do you remember, without him being present? Well, it, my father was terribly upset when we heard that Dr. King had been shot and he came home from his office, and he had to get into bed. And we didn't know, and then we found out. And he, he was really devastated. My father was devastated. So it was a, a very difficult time. So just a couple more things now about you, and then we'll open up for some questions, and I'll pull it together. So the orange on the plate. <laughs> I don't know Only because you're so identified with it. Be it mistakenly so. How many Does of you, how many in this room have put an orange on your Seder plate? Really? See that? See that? Blossom? Okay, okay. I mean, others? So you're in, 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 popular, in popular writing, you get the credit. Go ahead and talk about the orange <laughs> on the plate. Okay, so <laughs> I, when I was in graduate school, I, um, I used to read manuscripts for a publisher. And then one day they said, here, why don't you edit a book on feminist issues? So... Okay, my mother said, don't do it, but I did it. And uh, <laughs> uh, so I edited a book called uh, Being a Jewish Feminist. And then I gave some talks, and I was once at Oberlin College, and there were some Jewish students at the Hillel who had written a marvelous story about um, putting a crust of bread on the Seder plate. And, I, and this was both as a signal, by the way. Maybe I should have the, uh, All right, I'll tell you that this is their story, which is a great story. They said, one, once upon a time in the future, the feminista Rebbe was sitting at her table at Passover, <laughs> surrounded by her disciples, and they were telling the story of Passover. And then one of them said, Rebbe, tell us, why is there a crust of bread on the Seder plate? 
And the feminist Arevi sighed and closed her eyes, and she said, many generations ago, there was a family of women getting ready for Passover. They were cooking and cleaning and singing and dancing, the grandmothers, the mothers, the aunts, the cousins. And the youngest of them, named Pua, who was 15, said, I have a question. I am going to go and ask the rabbi. So she goes to ask the rabbi of the town, who is a, the Fabrenta rabbi, the fiery, burningly orthodox, strict, strict. And you know, everybody loves chumras right before Passover, as strict as possible. And, he, and she comes to him and she says, Rabbi, I have a question. And he's delighted because a question on the eve of Passover usually means a crumb dropped into the pot of chicken soup. And then he can tell you, <laughs> you have to throw everything away. The soup, the pot, the whole kitchen, start all over again. So he's delighted and he says, ask my daughter, ask. So she says, Rabbi, what place is there for a lesbian in Judaism? <laughs> and the rabbi jumps up and turns beet red and grabs her by the shoulders and starts shaking her, forgetting that he shouldn't touch a woman. And he says, there's as much place for a lesbian in Judaism as there is for a crust of bread on the Seder table. So that was their story in Oberlin. I thought it was fantastic. But the problem for me was a crust of bread means it's no longer Pesach. You know, it's over. And in addition, it's transgressive. And I didn't think being a lesbian is transgressive. So, but I thought it was a nice idea to do something like that. So I started putting an orange on the Seder plate. And usually that time of year in New York is a tangerine. So that, you know, they're little segments and they have a lot of seeds. And at some point, we have a very traditional, very long Seder. Everything in Hebrew, we can have some English also, with a lot of commentaries and discussion. It goes on for hours and hours. I love it. But people get hungry. So at a certain point, we took the orange, passed it around. They made the prayer over fruit. They took a segment and ate their segment in solidarity with all gay and lesbian Jews. And I added widows and orphans and people who are marginalized in the Jewish community, sometimes people who are converts or who have been adopted. And we eat the segment, yeah, because you know an orange has segments, but they're, they make a hole. And we spit out the seeds of the homophobia. <laughs> and, and so I thought it was, was great. And that's how you started. And that's how it started. Then yeah. I started, yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I know. Then yeah. this other story goes around that I was giving a lecture in the Holy Land, also known as Miami Beach. <laughs> and, a man, and a man gets up and denounced me and said, oh, there's as much room for a woman on the Bema as an yeah, orange on the Seder plate. That didn't happen. That <laughs> only did not happen. But you have to realize, I mean, they take my idea and they give it to a man. They remove the issue of homophobia entirely. And they're talking, women, women are on the Bemis, so what's the big deal? So, uh, right. So let's take a few questions from the audience. I'll repeat them because it's getting recorded. Uh, Rabbi Podwall, why don't you stand so everyone can um, read your lips? <laughs> I, I have two quick questions. Would you like to comment on the special relationship that your father had with Rabbi Rick uh, Kelman? And my second question is, every time I wanted to write about a Jewish subject, uh, I found that your father has already written about it. <laughs> <laughs> Not about Southern California, but about your father's writing. 
So I'm going to repeat it only because, um, is this, was this question picked up, Eugene? Uh, Austin, yeah. Austin. Oh, you got it. Okay, thanks, Austin. Okay, so go ahead. So Wolf Kalman was a very good friend. He was a um, student of my father's. He came from Canada, also from a Hasidic family. And he stayed on at the seminary as the person who was in charge of the organization of conservative rabbis. So my father saw him often. And they would walk together, walk home from, from the office together. And, and sometimes uh, we would go to the Kalmans for Friday night dinner. And Jackie Kalman was the most famous uh, faculty wife, or she wasn't faculty, but wife in the, in the community for her cooking. She was great. And they had three children who were around my age, and that was nice too. So they were very, very good friends. And I think my father spent more time with Wolf Kelman than anybody else in New York among his friends. And did my father cover every single topic? Uh, no, not every single topic, but I think he gave us a good way to think about issues. And, to and, and also, he was somebody who always thought critically. He studied constantly, always had a book, but he was always questioning. Uh, he was a serious intellectual. He would read something, he would, might like it, but he always wanted to say, what's the next question? That was very important. Thank you. Mike Nadelson? Do you remember Mike stands so easier for people to hear you. Do you remember what your bar, mi bar mitzvah Parsha was and what Havdorim? <laughs> yes, it was Amor. <laughs> and it was Yechezkel. Bakoinim Halvim B'nai Tzadok. B'nai Tzadok. So I actually wrote a book about Abraham Geiger, who wrote a very important argument about the Sadducees uh, that comes out of that. Uh, but my speech was not about the Parsha. It was about the Rambam. What did you say? I, I said that the Rambam was a model of how to live a life. Uh, yeah, for his wide variety of interests and for his helping people with their problems. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that was my speech. Other questions? Yes, stand please. Oh, so um, that's it, I, my father's position on Zionism. So my father, first of all, uh, I think would have gone happily to Israel to teach, but you maybe you know or you don't know that Gershom Sholem uh, wasn't interested in having people who were teaching theology. Uh, certain people he felt just were... Just to give context, Gershom Sholem at Hebrew uh, University, great Kabbalist scholar, was, the, was he the chair of the department? He was a very... He was the man who ran the world in his day. At Hebrew uh, University. Yeah. So Gershom Sholem didn't want theologians. He, there was an article in the, in the Hebrew newspaper a couple of years ago. I don't remember which newspaper, but uh, somebody wrote an essay pointing out that Sholem... Sholem made life miserable for Martin Buber. He got Yosef Weiss to leave Israel altogether and moved to England and then committed suicide. Right. And he kept my father out. And those are the three most important figures in that era uh, of the 50s, 60s um, for, for the soul, for the spirit of Israelis. Uh, and Sholem was, was bitter about many things. So that was unfortunate. My father went frequently to Israel lectured for the World Zionist Organization, and he wrote a book called Israel, an Echo of Eternity, which he wrote after the 67 war. Uh, he was 
Yeah, and he was consulted by Ben-Gurion about the who is a Jew question, et cetera. So he was very engaged with Israel. Bruce? That's a very interesting question. The question is, how is it? Yes, sure. So the question was, how is it that my father came from a Hasidic background, would have gone to Germany and immersed himself in a secular education? Uh, and uh, I'll tell you what he said. He said that he felt that, first of all, that the world needed something from him, that they didn't need him to be a Rebbe, that the whole world needed to learn something about Judaism. He used to say Judaism is the least understood religion. And so Rabbi Belkin, you know, the president of Yeshiva University, said to my father, you're the rabbi to the world. And, and I think he was. And Christians would say, yeah, he's my rabbi. So... Sure, I think that's a really interesting question. And actually, the question was about the prophets. Why would somebody from a Hasidic background choose the topic of the prophets as his doctoral dissertation rather than, let's say, I run the Torah or Jewish law or something like that? Um, actually, you know, one thing I wish somebody would do is write a history of biblical scholarship on the prophets in, in the 19th, 20th century. Um, what, what, was the, what was the scholarship um, at that time? Because it also has to do with how Muhammad was viewed, was he a prophet, et cetera, and, and was Jesus called a prophet, et cetera, all those kinds of questions. Um, I think that um, he had inside of him also already the book that he wrote later, Torah Minashamayim, which is about rabbinic thought, which he wrote really uh, almost overnight, very, very quickly, three volumes. Uh, he had it in his head all the time. But I think if you read that book and you see the prophets, you see the connections. That is, the prophets, in some sense, his interest in the prophets was an interest in being very critical of biblical scholarship and saying, this is not the way to approach the Bible. But it was also a vehicle for him to talk in more general theological terms because, in fact, what he says later in a different way in God in Search of Man, you can see it already when he's talking about divine pathos in his book on the prophets. So it was more, I would say, a vehicle for him to talk about revelation, to talk about God, and to talk about scholarship. Matthew? Dialogue 
Ah, well, that's an interesting question about interfaith dialogue. So, uh, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me is uh, that when I've looked at 19th century Jewish thought, everybody's talking about Jesus. Jewish thinkers are talking about Jesus a lot. You know, Martin Buber said, Jesus is my brother, and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of that. Uh, I think my father's intervention was to say, we shouldn't talk about Jesus. We should talk about things that divide us. We'll never agree. What's the point? Instead, let's talk about what unites us. So he made a distinction between theology and depth theology, what he called. Yeah? So there's theology or religiosity, you might say. So he said, instead, let's talk about how we might support each other in moments of despair as religious people, or how hard it is sometimes to pray. How do we support one another? How do we read the Psalms? What can we learn from one another about how to read a Psalm? I think those are questions that uh, would probably be useful for an interfaith conversation. Yeah. Um, Two quick questions, and then I'm going to pull this together. This, again, is a little bit longer than some of our other conversations, but what a treat to have uh, oh. Professor <laughs> Heckel. So, Seth, quick question, and then Mike. Okay, so perhaps, first of all, let me say on the issues of free will, yeah, my father writes about that at times, that God has given us free will. Um, but but maybe if I just give you a very quick little answer, I'll just tell you this. One day, I was doing my homework, and all of a sudden, a thought came to me, which was extraordinary, which is that I have a life, and that it's mine. And I can do anything. I can study. I can travel. I can. It's, it belongs to me. In other words, I'm not just somebody's child, but I. It's my life. And what an amazing thing it is to have a life, to be given a life. And I was so excited by this thought, and I immediately ran in to tell my father. Told him this. I have a life. It's mine, and I can. I can do anything. And he listened. And he nodded. And he said, yes, but what are you going to do with it? And I knew what he meant. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do that's responsible, that's going to change the world, that's going to make a difference, that's going to fulfill what needs to be done? It's not just yours. So I would say you could think about free will in that way, too. It's not just do I have, I can do, what I want, but what, what ultimately is the goal? So that was an important moment for me. Mike? Your father was one of those few great Jewish scholars who lived to write about this. Did he ever talk, did he ever talk about whether that caused him to question his faith? And if not, did he ever talk about how it would affect his 
There are so many, many things to say in response to that question. First of all, uh, my father spoke to me about what happened when I was very little, when we would take walks, the two of us. Uh, some things were so painful to him that he would break down. Some things he didn't really, um, were hard for him to articulate. I will tell you, for example, I think almost everything he wrote has an allusion, if not a direct statement. So he, he, was, he wrote from the beginning about Auschwitz and Hiroshima together, which is very unusual for Jewish thinkers. It's usually just Auschwitz. He always said Auschwitz and Hiroshima. He wrote his book, Who Is Man? started out first thing. Look at the image we have of human beings, of human life that was created by these so-called great thinkers in Germany. We had Heidegger on the bookshelf, and we had Konrad Lorenz, two Nazis. Yeah? What, how do we measure what it is to be a human being, and where does it lead us? And one of his issues was with philosophy. What is the moral responsibility of philosophy? It's not enough to just sit back and be a philosopher or a scholar of any kind, or to simply say, I have a life. What's the moral responsibility? And what has philosophy done for us? Uh, so, and all of this with the back, you know, with the allusion being to Germany and Nazi Germany and what people were saying about what it is to be a human being. When he spoke out about Soviet Jewry at the beginning, when he was attacked for that, nobody was supposed to talk about that. But again, he was desperate. What are we doing to save the Jews of the Soviet Union? We can't go to the synagogue, can't practice Judaism, they're going to lose everything. And there was a desperation when he spoke about that because of what happened to him. Being in America, nobody was doing anything. He talked about this in the book on Israel. Israel is not some kind of compensation for Auschwitz, he said. Don't ever put the two together like that. Um, so I think throughout, but I think his, his main concern had to do with how do we behave as human beings? Because ultimately, we human beings did this. Human beings killed other human beings. So what can we do about this? We, what's our responsibility? And I will tell you that he wrote some, he, he gave a speech once with Martin Luther King, just a few months after they met, it was to a group of rabbis, and it was about Soviet Jews, it was at the Concord Hotel in the Catskills. And at the end of the speech, my father said, I want to say a few words now in Yiddish. And what he said in Yiddish was unbelievable, it was extraordinary. It was also very much about American Jews, about the complacency, about the failure. But he also said there, you know, it's not just that we say Kaddish for the six million who were killed. We should be saying Kaddish for ourselves, for our souls. Because where were the souls of human beings that this could happen? So we should be saying Kaddish for our souls too that we've allowed this world to go in this direction. That's how he spoke. So I would say over and over, this happened. The, he spoke in this way. And I think he reminded us too when he said, what, how can we have faith in other human beings and trust? What does this do to us? Go ahead. Two closing questions. You have a 15 and a 13-year-old daughter. 
What do you tell them about prayer? Well, my father exposed me to all aspects of Judaism. I uh, saw so Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, and I want to do the same for my children. When I took my children to the school, the Jewish day school in Boston, and they said, what do you want most from this school? I said, I want my children to learn Ahavas Hashem. I want them to learn to love God. I want them to be exposed to people who love God and to have a presence of God in the classroom. Guess what? So that's not what happens at that school. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that children, children, you don't, I, okay, I say this. So my, when I was in fourth grade at Ramaz, which was um, an Orthodox school in New York, my father came to the parent-teacher meeting and he said the teachers were presenting the curriculum. My father said to them, well, why don't you teach the children poetry? The reason being that if you want to, you can't teach somebody prayer, but you can teach them poetry and you can set an example. And that's what's important. So, uh, yeah. What can I say? Yeah. So what do you say to your daughters about what it means to pray? I, I don't think we, you know, we don't speak about it directly because I don't feel that I don't know what to say. I don't feel that somehow I don't want things to be too explicit. Some things need to be so intimate that you don't talk about it. Some things you allude to. So I try to bring them to places where they are surrounded by people who are praying. And I remember when my daughter was maybe two and a half and she was in the synagogue and there was someone who was standing and praying with her eyes closed and my daughter was just drawn over to that, and that's, that was special. I take my children to Burrow Park. I take them wherever I can to be around people who are praying. But in America? Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so I say I have a lot of Heschel books, and I thought uh, this just occurred to me in this moment. I assume you know the poems in this book. Yeah. So here's I'm putting you on the spot to say two things, this is kind of closing. If you pick one poem to put in your father's voice, do you have a favorite poem in there or not? I don't like these translations. Okay, <laughs> so it won't go there. <laughs> so it won't go there. <laughs> How good your Yiddish? I think, I think that- They were written in Yiddish. Yeah, my, they were written when my father was very young and he, he felt a little embarrassed about them. And is that right? Yeah. Well, sure, if you wrote something when you were 17 and you were now, you know, 56 <laughs> years old, wouldn't you? But his book, <laughs> yeah, I think Man's, Man's Quest for God is a beautiful book about prayer. And, and it has a lot to tell us about the sensitivity of prayer uh, and, and also the, the s what he calls the subversiveness of prayer. I think one of the important things he said is that when you come to the synagogue, you shouldn't walk out and pat yourself on the back and say, I'm such a good person, I went to the synagogue today. He said you should feel a little you know, upset with yourself. I'm not living up to the values of the prayer book. Uh, that's important. So, <laughs> so this is a book <laughs> that she likes the translations of. She edited it. So... 
Is there a closing paragraph or two so that your father's voice is heard directly? Um, but, but I want to pull it together to allow you to do that. And that is, you know, earlier Professor Heschel, Susanna, spoke of her father's first, his book on Maimonides. Maimonides, the punchline of that book is that Maimonides began his life writing about God and ended his life as a partner with God as a physician. And no doubt your father, who wrote profoundly and quickly and left us with enormous legacy about what it means to be close to God, also lived a life toward the end of his life of social activity that provided a model of what it means to walk with God. But it seems, again, I'm moved to hear you talk and provide a personal dimension, but your father had such a distinctive voice, and it seems like a way to just have you bring him into our midst. Okay, well, let me read you this. I love this essay. It's called Existence and Celebration, and it was a speech that my father gave at a convention of the Jewish Federations that was held in Montreal at the St. Elizabeth Hotel. And I just want to read the two sentences, a couple sentences. To okay. yeah, one to give you a sense of my father's sense of humor and irony, because there's a lot of irony, just like in the prophets, right? The prophets have a lot of irony. And then something at the end that I think is very beautiful. So first of all, the funny part, he says, there are two words I should like to strike from our vocabulary, surveys and survival. Our community is in spiritual distress, and some of our organizations are often too concerned with digits. <laughs> our disease is loss of character and commitment, and the cure of our plight cannot be derived from charts and diagrams. You know this Pew report, yes? <laughs> when surveys become an obsession, a sacred cow that eats up vast energies, they may yield confirmation of little more than what we know in advance. <laughs> in, it is in such a spirit that undertaking surveys is an evasion of creative action, a splendid illusion. Now I'll read you from the conclusion of this speech. <sighs> the tyranny of conformity tends to deprive man of his inner identity, of his ability to stand still in the midst of flux, to remain a person in the midst of a crowd, Thus, the threat to modern man is loss of personhood, vanishing of identity, seeking into anonymity, not knowing who he is, where he comes from, and where he goes. Being a Jew makes anonymity impossible. A Jew represents, stands for, proclaims, even in spite of himself. The world never sees the Jew as an individual, but rather as a representative of a whole tradition, of a whole people. A Jew is never alone. Who is a Jew? A person whose integrity decays when unmoved by the knowledge of wrong done to other people. Who is a Jew? A person in travail with God's dreams and designs. A person to whom God is a challenge, not an abstraction. He is called upon to know of God's stake in history, 
to be involved in the sanctification of time and in building the Holy Land, to cultivate passion for justice and the ability to experience the arrival of Friday evening as an event. Who is a Jew? A person who knows how to recall and to keep alive what is holy in our people's past and to cherish the promise and the vision of redemption in the days to come. Who is a Jew? A witness to the transcendence and presence of God. A person in whose life Abraham would feel at home. A person for whom Rabbi Akiva would feel deep affinity. A person of whom the Jewish martyrs of all ages would not be ashamed. Well, just, you'll have a closing comment, not for what you're going I wanted, after hearing Rabbi Heschel's voice resonate and touch us, at the same time, I wanted to have the last word be Susanna Heschel. Because, <laughs> because, because what we learn in our tradition is that the greats who went before us are our inspiration, and yet we're empowered and responsible to carry on. You're heir to this great Hasidic tradition, but more. You grew up in the home of your mom, Sylvia, and your dad, Abraham. What's your closing word for us as our teacher? No, I think that what I just read was so beautiful <laughs> and so wonderful that I, I can't add to it, but I would just say that was a little taste, and I'm glad that you had the taste both of my father's humor, which also had a message, uh, and also of how moving his words can be and how he put things into a context of Jewish history and Jewish thought and what we stand for. I appreciate that so much, what he said to me. You know, you have a life, but what are you going to do with it? Because, yeah, a Jew stands for something. We stand for something, and it's not just about numbers, as he said. What are the principles we stand for? And I appreciate what you say. Yes, I, I come from a wonderful family, both my father and my mother. But my father also pointed out that we are all, we are all descended from royalty, from King David, from Adam and Eve. We're all in the divine image, he said. You know, when did God break the Ten Commandments? It says in the Ten Commandments, don't make an image of God. And God made human beings in God's image. Yeah? God broke the ta ha ha ha. It was a joke, he would tell. <laughs> yeah. So what does it mean, he said, to be an image of God? To be a reminder to other people so that when they come to know you, they think of God. How do you live that kind of life? A life surrounded by people of religious nobility as he was in his childhood. So I leave us with those kinds of questions to think about. And it was wonderful Thank to you. be with you. Professor Thank you. Susanna oh. Heschel. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Thank you.